being quoted is a funny thing. I don't know, some of you guys have told me that you deal with writing a little bit. You know, you've, you've transferred. Um, Tom, I think you said you do audio books occasionally. Dave has written a book. Some people um, write different things. And the interesting thing, when you put that in a ministry concept, ministers typically like being quoted. I don't know why that is. It's just we like being quoted. I like being quoted. I don't know why. It just feels kind of cool when you see a sentence and then it's tagged with your name like so-and-so said that. Awesome. I said something that was pretty cool that they, they took and they ran with. Like it's just kind of a, a cool little thing. But one thing I've noticed, and it's really kind of gotten under my skin a little bit, is that sometimes ministers will try and say something that's quote-unquote quotable and sometimes they do it and they actually distort the truth just so that they can be quotable. Just so that they can say something that's cutting edge, that's fresh, that's different. And I won't say who it was, but this past week I read a quote and it absolutely broke my heart. I mean, it literally brought tears to my eyes seeing this quote because it's from a big name guy. Written books, published CDs, has a... Um, has commentaries on books of the Bible, has his own radio program, has his own website, has his own following, has a huge mega church. I mean, it's from a big name guy that a lot of people look up to. And he said this, he said, Jesus Christ is not my personal Savior. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he said it, and reading the context of what he was saying, what he was trying to say was actually good, because he was trying to say that easy believism or just making a prayer is not enough. You have to surrender the Lordship of Christ. But in doing so, he said a lie. He said something heretical, trying to say something that was true, just to be quotable. Just so that his name could be in quotation marks and it could be hashtagged with his name, he said something that was heretical. Jesus Christ is not my personal Savior. Then what are you doing in the ministry? What do, you, what do you have to look forward to? What is your hope if Jesus Christ isn't your personal Savior? You have nothing. Who cares if He's Lord if you're going to hell? If He didn't save you, who cares if He's Lord because you're under the Lordship of the devil? Who cares? It was such a simple statement that completely distorted the whole point that He was trying to make. So being quotable or being quoted is super dangerous. <laughs> I had a friend call me this week, very, very good friend, and he starts off our conversation. He's actually a pastor up in Tennessee. His name is Larry, pastors of church in Clarksville, Tennessee, but he, he called me, and the first thing he starts off our conversation with was, I quoted you last Sunday, and I had just had this experience read that quote, and so I'm like, dear God, what did you say? <laughs> because I had literally just read this quote that completely distorted the point that he was trying to make, and then he tells me, I quoted you this past Sunday, and I'm like... Great. That sounds awesome. And then when he listens to this, because I'm sure that he will at some point in time, I don't want him to think that I don't want to be quoted, because quote me, fine, whatever. But he said, I quoted you. And so, you know, you have a little bit of pride come up and you have a little bit of concern come up at the same time. Like, what did you quote? What did I say that was important enough? And as I was preparing, this quote was registering in me. And I, simply, I said this just in passing to him. I just said, a true believer or a true Christian will never get tired of hearing the simple gospel. And an unbeliever doesn't need to hear anything else. And so it was a great quote. And I'm like, wow, oh, that's awesome. Don't even remember saying that. But 
<laughs> yeah, you can quote me on that. <laughs> but anyway, I just got to thinking about that. And I had something prepared to preach this morning, but I just that just started churning over and over again. And as I was preparing, I was going to preach on our pursuit of God and, you know, our response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I just I started thinking about that. A true Christian, a true believer will never get tired of hearing the gospel, the simple gospel. And an unbeliever doesn't need to hear anything else. I think about Charles Spurgeon. He never preached on anything but Jesus on the person of Jesus. He didn't preach theology in a broad spectrum. He did teaching and classes on that at other times, but he didn't preach anything but just the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he was asked one time, why don't you preach this? Or why don't you preach this? Or I preach this message, but it doesn't have anything to do with the person and work of Jesus. And Charles Spurgeon's response was, because they lived in London, and we'll put it in our context. He said, Anywhere you go in Europe, is there not a road that leads back to London? No matter where you're at in Europe, there's a road, even if it's a walking path, that leads to a bigger road, that leads to a bigger road, that leads to a bigger road, that eventually leads back to the metropolitan London. And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, there, of course there is. And he's like, there is nowhere that you can be in that Bible without a road that leads back to Jesus. And I think about that in our context. No matter where you're at in the United States, you'll find a road that can lead you to New York City or Los Angeles. I mean, there's a road that will take you to where you want to go regardless of where you're at. And so when I think about that, I can't preach anything but the simple gospel because if I do so, I'm violating the whole truth for a part truth. And we went over that Wednesday night about how everything is funneled through the entire truth of the gospel. When we do a study, when we do a conversation, we're dissecting scripture, we can't let the context of the passage violate or defile the overall context of the whole book. And so when we study a passage, if that context of that passage violates the overall flow of the entire book, then our context is wrong and we have to figure out where our misinterpretation at, where our study went wrong at because we can't violate the context of the whole book. And when you think about the whole book, the whole book is summed up in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10:7. Behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. In the volume, in the entirety of the book, it is written of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I am the truth. The truth, meaning the Word of God from beginning to end, from start to finish. I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. I am He who is, who was, and who is to come. Everything filters through that one thing, the supreme truth, which is Jesus Christ. And we can't preach anything. We can't teach anything that does not end and find its destination in Jesus Christ. Because if we do, we've missed something. We went astray somewhere. And so when I'm looking at it this morning and I'm thinking about all these things that were on my mind during worship and I was thinking about all these things that I was praying about last night, I have to realize that we have to get back to the simple gospel. It has to be simple. Paul says, I'm afraid for you lest you stumble over the simplicity that's in Christ. And Faith, sometimes I love her, but sometimes she makes me so mad. We'll be in conversations or talking about a peripheral issue in Scripture, and I'll be getting all theological and everything, and she'll say something so stupidly simple that neglects my whole debate, and I get so frustrated because it's so simple and it's so profound and it wears me out every time. But sometimes we need to do that. We need to receive the kingdom of God as a child. We need to realize that God didn't make this hard. He made it simple. He made it easy. It's Jesus or nothing. 
So let's get away from all these peripheral issues that take up all of our time. Let's get away from all these arguments and all these debates and all these struggles and let's just focus on Jesus. If you see a woman preaching, because there will eventually be women that preach here, I'm sorry if that you don't like that. But I don't want to be held accountable for not letting a woman preach if God was saying, let her preach. I'd rather be held accountable for letting someone portray the gospel and encouraging them in their pursuit of God than held accountable for preventing them from doing that. So there will be women preaching. I'll let you know a week or so beforehand so that you don't have to participate in that if you feel like that violates anything. But there will be women preaching here. There will be. Let's get away from those debates. If a woman preaches, you're not accountable for her preaching. You're not going to be judged for whether or not you receive a truth from that. She'll be judged for whether or not she should be preaching and she'll handle that with God at the end on her own schedule, on her own time when she stands before God alone. She's not going to be standing up there with everybody that ever listened to her preach saying, I'm accountable for all of these people. And they're not going to have to pull her up there like, oh, this one time Sunday at the Garden Church, you listen to that woman preach, you're going to hell because you listen to her. That's, that's ludicrous. If you don't agree with it, you don't agree with it. I'm not telling you to change your views. What I am saying is let's just come together. Let's support somebody in their pursuit of God and their pursuit of what they feel like they've been called to do. And let's let them answer for God on that day. Amen? Amen. All right. I don't know where all that came from, but it was free. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Lanyard. Lanyard. That's right. A little something extra. Straight out of the bayou. Hey, man. All right, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let me ask you a question. What is a treasure? What defines a treasure? You guys have all heard that saying. Yard sailors say it all the time. One man's trash is another man's treasure. What, but what defines that treasure? Like what makes something a treasure? What makes something valuable? Something makes you happy. Huh? Yeah, something makes you happy. How you feel about it. We define what's valuable and what's not valuable. For example, you guys all have those rectangular pieces of paper that have a number on it and a president's face or an important historical figure's face on it. And you take that to the store and you exchange it for goods. Used to be, a long, long time ago, that dollar was a representation of gold. right? And it was backed by the gold standard. Well, now we don't have the gold, but we still keep printing the money. So we have the paper, but we don't have the gold that backs the paper. But we still esteem that dollar valuable and you can still exchange that for goods even though it's a piece of paper. The material that makes up that dollar is not worth a whole lot. But that dollar is worth something because it'll get the goods that we want. Right? Because we have designated that that is valuable. Even though there's no material thing that says it's valuable, we've just designated that it is. Even gold. Gold is a rock, a metal, a stone. 
Like, it's not valuable in any sense other than it's desired and it's coveted and man has said that gold is more valuable. What about silver? I mean, we would think that silver is pretty valuable. I don't know how much you can get for an ounce or a pound of silver now, but we designate that silver is a valuable, precious metal, right? Well, in Solomon's day, King Solomon, David's son, in his day, he was so rich that silver was thrown out in the streets like gravel and nobody cared about it. Because it was so plentiful that it wasn't valuable at all. So it wasn't a treasure. Now if you found that much silver, you'd be like, I'm rich, I'm rich. I've got all kinds of treasure. So treasure is not defined by it has its own entity of value. It's defined as being a treasure, being valuable because someone desires it. Someone has that desire for it. It doesn't say that he found the center for all life and all the wealth and all. It just says he found a treasure. It doesn't even say what the treasure is. It doesn't say if it was gold or silver or a precious gem or a stone or anything. It just says he found a treasure. You know, I think about, and this is so silly, you guys are going to laugh at me. I think about when I was younger and I played with Pokemon cards, Pokemon cards. I don't know how you say it, but Pokemon. I played with I played with those cards. I collected them. You know, I had a little portfolio with all the little sleeves and the cards, and thought I was gonna be rich because I had all these cards. You know, my dad one Christmas, uh, he bought me, and it was brand new, out of the pack, and put in one of those glass cases, and it was screwed shut. But it was a Charizard card. I mean, you guys probably don't know what Charizard is, but anyway, it was a dragon. It was a Charizard card, first edition. He paid fifty bucks for it, right? And then my grandparents' house burned down, and it got burned down in their house. But I looked up, just out of curiosity, the other, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, something like that. I looked it up, how much that card was worth. That card, in that case, is worth over $5,000. I'm like, man, where's that card? <laughs> Even though I know it's ashes now, and it's been swept away and buried. But it was, it was $50 when he paid for it, and it's worth $5,000 now. Because people have placed a greater value on it. You know, I think about all these men, and especially old-timers, you ever heard somebody say, yeah, when I was younger, I had a 1953 Chevy truck, and I wish I had that truck now. You know, because in 1950, you could buy a car for brand new for like $1,500. I, I Googled that, so I know it's right. <laughs> for all you people that actually were there. I Googled that, and I know it's right. <laughs> but you can buy a car for like, you could have bought a car for like $1,500, and brand new, right off the lot. Yeah, and now those cars, some of those cars are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Redone and finished up, Adam knows way more about that than I do. But the painted and redone, some of those cars are worth a lot of money. Hundreds of times what they were actually paid for when they were brand new, first made. The point is, is that all of this stuff, you know, Dave doing his stamps that were worth 10, 15 cents brand new, now they're worth, some of them are worth tens of thousands of dollars. Some of the ones that are actually destroyed are worth more than the ones that are in good condition. But they were all worth nothing at first. And then time and people's value and desire to have those things has added value onto it. But in themselves, you know, those stamps, those pieces of paper, they ain't worth nothing. They're just little pieces of paper. That Charizard card was a literal piece of cardboard, cardstock, whatever. It ain't worth a thing. But we put value on it. And so therefore, us desiring that put value on it. And the reason that I'm laboring that point so heavy is that the object in of itself was 
completely worthless until someone had a desire for that object. Gold isn't worth anything until someone desired it. Precious stones, diamonds, and all that, they're not worth anything until someone desires those things. That dollar is worth nothing unless someone desires We put value on things by our desire for them. Likewise, we are worth absolutely nothing except the fact that God desired us. We are worth absolutely nothing except the fact that God's love and His desire was for us. He wanted us, not because He looked at us and said, oh, there's something precious in of its own self. No, He looked at us and said, there's something that I can bestow my love and my mercy and my grace on. Therefore, I want it. Therefore, we now have value because God has made us valuable. Right? And then we look at Jesus and the things that Jesus did to accomplish that. He literally sold everything He had. Jesus purchased us with His very life. And the great thing about this is, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, actually labors this point. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the races set before us. And here's the important part. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy... That was set before him, despised the cross, or endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of majesty on high. Who for the joy, you are the joy that caused Christ to endure the cross. You are the joy that Christ died for. You are valuable because of his desire for you. Everything from before the foundation of the world, every movement, every action, everything that God has done has been an intentional step towards your redemption. Revelation says that John saw Christ standing there as a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even formed, Christ had already died and was crucified in the mind of God because God had planned or predestined the plan of adoption. He had predestined the means by which mankind would be redeemed to Himself. Therefore, the whole work, everything is funneled through that filter. He created man knowing man was going to fall. He created man knowing that Christ was going to have to die to redeem mankind. And I think about that when I get and I'm reading Scripture. You know, we have a tendency to forget the overall picture of the Bible when we're reading a passage. We have a tendency to forget the overall picture of the atonement work. And we don't realize sometimes that from Genesis to Revelation is all an unveiling of the redemption of God. So when we're looking at Genesis... We're reading Genesis. We don't always think about the sacrifice of Christ while we're reading the book of Genesis and the creation of the world. But sometimes, and particularly last night, I was just praying and I was just talking to God. And I just, I just realized that God spoke everything into existence. He spoke with no pre-existing materials. He spoke everything into existence. Let there be light. Let there be a light holder or something to hold the light. Let the waters be separated from the waters. Let there be trees. Let there be herbs. Let there be beasts of the field and fish of the sea and birds of the air. Let there be, let there be, let there be. But then when he got to the sixth day and he went to create man, he took the dust from the earth and he formed man. And I just can't help but thinking when he was forming Adam that he was thinking of Jesus. 
When he was forming the first Adam, his mindset was on the last Adam. Because that's another name for Jesus. Adam was the first man that was ever created completely sinless. Jesus was the last man or the second man that was ever created completely sinless. So I just have to imagine that when he was forming Adam's head, he was thinking about the crown of thorns that Jesus would wear. When he was forming Adam's side, he was thinking about the spear that would one day pierce the side of his son. When he was forming Adam's hands and he was forming Adam's feet, I just can't help but thinking that maybe, just maybe, he was picturing the nails that was going to be pierced through the hands and the feet of Jesus. When he was forming his back, I just can't help but think that maybe, just maybe, he was thinking about Jesus being beaten at the judgment hall with the cat of nine tails and they were just beating him and his flesh was ripping off his back. And I just know that God, who sees all of time as if in an instant, he sees from beginning to end, from the creation of Adam till the coming of Jesus, the second coming in the millennial reign, he can see all of that as in just one glance, in one second. A day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day to God. He sees it all at the same glance. So I just have to think that when he was forming Adam, he was thinking of Jesus. And as he formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, he was thinking about the sacrifice that his son would make. And he never stopped. He didn't stop forming Adam because he thought about the pain Jesus was going to have to endure. He didn't stop when he formed Adam's foot and say, no, I don't want to see my son have the second foot pierced. I don't want to form the back because I don't want my son's back to be beaten. I don't want to form the side because I don't want his side to be pierced. I don't want to form his face and everything because I know one day his sweat is going to be like great drops of blood. I don't want to form this because I know what's going to happen. No, it says for joy he did that, knowing that all of that was going to work out the redemption of man. You ever think that when God created the way that men and women exist, the fact that we have to have blood flowing through our bodies, that when God created that, he was thinking about the blood that Jesus was going to shed? I mean, do we ever just open our mind and say that God in all of His wisdom and all of His omnipotence and all His omniscience was actually thinking about the sacrifice of Jesus when He was creating mankind? When He created the first bull and the first goat and the first lamb, He was creating those knowing what they would do. They would be sacrifices to fulfill the old covenant as a shadow for the coming of Jesus Christ. Do we ever just think about these things? That everything God did was an intentional step towards the cross was an intentional step towards the coming of Jesus. When we look at the lamb and the ram and the goat and all those Old Testament shadows, every single one of those things, every time God spoke to a prophet, every time God spoke through the high priest, every year on the Day of Atonement when they offered the atonement sacrifice, every time God was simply thinking of Jesus thinking of the day that Jesus would come and He'd offer the last sacrifice. He'd offer the final atonement, the permanent atonement, the permanent sacrifice for our sins. It all points to Jesus. It all points back to that simple gospel. Christ as a boy in the temple. When His first coming, you know, we're about to get into that Christmas season, the first advent with the angels and the shepherd and the magi or the wise men coming from the Far East. And we celebrate and we put up our nativity scenes and Mary lays the baby in the feeding trough. All of that, all of that beauty and that celebration of joy, joy to the world, goodwill to men. I bring you great tidings uh, or glad tidings of great joy. All of that stuff. It all was done knowing what would come. That was the whole purpose. Even when the angel speaks to Mary, the Savior of the world. And you know, we think about that song, we listened to it last night. You know, Mary, did you know? Did you know when you were holding your baby boy? Did you know that he would one day heal 
the blind man? Did you know that he, the child that you deliver would one day deliver you? Like all of that stuff is just pointing to a larger picture. It's all pointing back to the coming of Jesus. Everything. And I'm laboring that point for a reason because everything God did was an intentional effort for your redemption. Everything. It wasn't like you're just walking along and one day you're like, oh, I think I'll go to church. Oh, I think that I'll give my life to Jesus and I'll, I'll be a happy Christian. <laughs> Bob Ross, happy little trees. One day I'll be a happy little Christian. No, you don't have the ability to make that decision without eons and thousands of years of work leading up to that moment. Everything that God did before time, everything that God's done in time, everything up to the point of your decision for Christ was a work that was leading to your decision of Christ. Everything that happens is further pushing you to depend on God. If it's something good, it's the goodness of God that's trying to urge you to repentance. If it's something bad, it's to cause you to fall at the feet of God for help and for deliverance. Everything works back to say, it's God. It's God. It's God. It's not you. You can't do it. It's not your circumstance. You can't change it. It's not any of that peripheral stuff. It's all working for a reason. Everything that happens, happens for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And I just want to just clear that up. Every single person in here is called according to the purpose of God. Because every single per person in here has a part to play in God's story. I had a text message from a friend of mine this morning and said that in his morning devotion, he was praying for me. And he said, you know, this is what I, I feel like you need to do this morning. You know, love the sheep, feed the sheep. But the end of the text message is something that he says all the time. He says that you joyfully play your part in God's bigger story. And every single one of us have a part to play. Every single one of us have a part to play in God's bigger story. All we have to do is surrender to that working of God. Behold, it's Christ in you working to will and do His good pleasure. It's God working in you and through you, trying to get you to that moment where you just surrender and say, okay, God, I'm yours. Lead me, show me, change me, make me, mold me, and let me play my part in your story. And then once you're changed, once you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, it doesn't stop there. God continually wants to mold you and sanctify you and grow you so that you can better play your part in His greater story. That's what it all comes about. Everything's been an intentional step, an intentional work, an intentional labor. God doesn't do anything haphazardly. He doesn't do anything, you know, passively or neglectfully. He doesn't just casually do something. Everything is super intentional, super programmed, super designated to bring you to the point of just surrendering to Jesus. When Christ was a boy in the temple, He said, I must be about my Father's business, even at the age of 12, knowing what he was going to do. As he was teaching and preaching as a man, after he got baptized, everything was pointing back to the day. Behold, the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinners. You know, I, where I'm going, you cannot follow. Everything that he was doing was leading them up to the moment when he was going to endure the Passion Week, when he was going to give his life so that we might be redeemed in him, when he was going to die and endure all of that suffering so that we might come to know Him and be reconciled in God and then be raised from the dead so that we might partake in His life and have everlasting life in Jesus. All of it was working for the simple gospel. 
All of it was working for the simple gospel. And then I think, I get back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And next week, Mike is coming down and he's going to preach next Sunday night. And he and I have one point that we agree on so strongly. Not that we disagree on everything else, but we have one thing that we've always said to each other. And it's part of the reason that this church is named the Garden. It's not the sole reason, but it's part of the reason. The Garden of Gethsemane is the single greatest moment in the entire Bible. And the reason for that is, is because the cross and everything that followed was a playing out of the decision that Christ made. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane when He prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but thy will be done. He prayed that three times. And that's not the only thing that he prayed, but that's what's recorded for us. When he labored in prayer and was so strained and travailing in prayer that not only did he cry and did he weep, but his pores from the stress were opened up and he sweat blood. All of that was him making the decision and saying yes. That was him literally saying yes to you. That was him getting to the point. Everything else was leading up. It's like you think of a game, like a football game or something, and all the practice and all the effort that's put into it all leads up to that moment right before kickoff when everybody's standing and it's like, okay, it's a clean slate. Everything is ready to go now. And it's like a culmination to the start. And all this stuff is building up, building up, building up. You know, in football, it'd be hype, all this hype and excitement, all that. With Christ, it wasn't hype. It was all of this tension, all of this anxiety for lack of a better word all of this pressure building up to that point when Christ said yes all of heaven was waiting all of hell was waiting all of creation was waiting waiting for the moment would Christ say yes undoubtedly of course he would because he's obedient to the to the will of God and he was sinless but he had to say yes he had to make that decision for us and it's so much so that when he's enduring the suffering when they get into the fight in the garden and Jesus is willingly ready to turn himself over and Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus puts it back on and heals it and says why do you do this do you not know that at any time I could have call on my father and he'd send 12 legions of angels to deliver me like Christ could have got out at any time but he said yes and then he followed it up with action. He said, yes, I want you. Yes, I want them. Yes, I want to see them redeemed. Yes, I want to have a relationship with them. And then he followed that up with his action. I want them. I want a people for myself. And I'm going to go and make sure that that happens. And so every sweat drop of blood that he perspired, every tear that he cried, all of that was an intentional effort of saying yes to us. It was an intentional step towards redemption. And then you think about the judgment hall where the people who days before were singing Hosanna, praise to the highest, glory is he that come in the name of the king. All of those people were now saying crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. All of that and he still presses on. He doesn't even defend himself. He doesn't respond back. When he's reviled, he doesn't revile back. When he's cussed, he doesn't cuss them. He just goes with it, submitting to the will of the Father. Completely and entirely to the will of the Father. And then you think about the Via Della Rosa, which is the road of blood where he walked from the judgment when they had finally made the decision to crucify him after he had been beaten at the rock with the cat of nine tails, after he had been chastised. He walks carrying his cross. And he has to make one step after another from judgment to the cross, a step that's with pain and blood and tears, knowing what he's walking to, that's even greater pain than the pain that he's already experienced, and yet he continues to take one step after another. And every step is, this is my people, this is for my people, this is for my people, this is for you, this is for you. 
This is for the people that I will redeem to my name. Every single step to the cross, and then He endured the cross, and then He endured the grave, and then He rose. All of that, all of that is working a redemption for His people. And so I just, I just labor all of that for this reason. And I said it when we were doing our exhortation before the worship. If we have anything to be thankful for, if we have anything to be thankful for, that's it. Anything to be thankful for. If we can say, God, I give you thanks for anything, it's for the simple gospel. Amen? Amen. Alright. So what we're going to do is we're just going to close out in prayer. If anyone wants to talk to me or needs prayer, um, I'm available to do that after the service. But I just want to I just want to close out. I just I just want to close out in prayer. A prayer of just humble thanksgiving. Because we get so caught up in stuff. We get so caught up in things that expire, things that end, things that have an expiration date. And there's one thing that's existed long before time, long before we were ever here, and will exist long after us, that will never expire, never end. And that's Christ Jesus and the simple gospel. The Bible says that it's so great that the angels themselves desire to look into it. If we have anything to be thankful for, that's it. That Christ desired us and was willing to give up all so that we might be His treasure. Hmm. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank You. I thank You for this church and for this people. Thank You for this group. God, I'm so thankful that You continue to grow Your church. That no one can simply say this is a man's doing, that man's working this out and constructing all this together because that would be foolishness. It's not because of me, because of how great I am, because we know that's not true. Or it's not because of faith, even though she is wonderful. It's not because of any of the congregants here. There's nothing about us that would say, God, you should pour your spirit out here. There's nothing about us that would say, God, you should move in this location. God, you just move in this location because that's your will to do so. Because you find pleasure in your people. And the Word says you deliver us because you delight in us. God, I just want to give thanks to you today. As we go and we celebrate eating and you know drinking appropriate fluids and all of these things, as we, as we celebrate this season of, of joy and of thanksgiving and of celebration, Lord, let's not, let's not get caught up in the the peripheral matters, the peripheral debates, the peripheral struggles. Let's not get caught up in the material things. Lord, let us focus on the simple gospel. The fact that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, let's do away with the shallow Christianity, the Christianity in name only. Help us get back to that deep, reckless Christianity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Y'all may go in peace.